0: brothers and sisters, when the catechism students come to a Lord's Day such as this one, then there is a sigh of relief. You know why? Well, because it's so short and simple. There's hardly anything to it. You can memorize it in no time flat. But why so short? Didn't the composers of the Heidelberg Catechism make a mistake? There are so many aspects to this Lord's Day that need explaining. For example, we state that 3 times 1 equals 1. To a child, that doesn't make sense, does it, children? What did you learn? Well, you learned that 3 times 1 equals 3. 3. Not that three times one equals one. And that's what we all expect as well. The doctrine about the Trinity has also been challenged extensively throughout the years, and especially during the first five or six centuries after Christ. The discussions about the Trinity were very lengthy and elaborate and contentious, It caused all kinds of rifts and unrest in the early church. Several ecumenical councils had to be held in order to come to the right formulation about the Trinity. And the Reformation was not without controversy about the Trinity either. Calvin had to defend the orthodox position of the church concerning the Trinity against many heretics, also today there are those especially the Jehovah witnesses who still deny the doctrine concerning the triune god. And so should we then not have a more elaborate treatment of this disputed doctrine in the Heidelberg catechism. Should our children not learn to defend themselves against the attacks against the biblical doctrine about the triune god? And so again, why so short? Well, there is good reason for it. There is a great wisdom in the brevity of the Heidelberg Catechism. There's also something very refreshing about it. But the doctrine about the Trinity is something that we confess from the Bible. It's simple and straightforward. But it is above all a matter of faith. And that is what I want to preach to you about this afternoon. Summarize this Lord's Day as follows. To confess that God exists in three persons is an act of faith. Lord's Day 8 begins with the question, how are these articles divided? And those articles mentioned here refer to the 12 articles of faith introduced in the previous Lord's Day, and which we will recite later on after the sermon. Those 12 articles, we were told in Lord's Day 7, give us a summary of the gospel. But do you know how those 12 articles of faith came about? They came about as a collection of confessional statements of believers in the early church. Before someone would be allowed to publicly profess his or her faith, he or she would be asked what they believe. And that person would then state that he believes that God the Father has created all things and that he is the one who governs everything. And he would say that he believes in God, the Son, that he died for our sins, and that he is now seated at the right hand of God to intercede for us. And he would state that he believes in the Holy Spirit who makes him a new creature and who gives him all the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. In other words, such a person would make a an important confessional statement as he would find them in the Bible. That is how the Bible speaks about God, about what he does, and how he relates to his creatures. The confessor did not try to prove the existence of God. No, he merely stated what the Bible says about God. And that's important. And that's why we also read from 1 John 4, namely that we must listen to God and not to the world, or to our worldly way of thinking and a worldly way of reasoning. Suppose you were trying to prove the existence of God to an unbeliever. Have you ever tried? Well, How do you go about it? Many attempts have been made in the past and are being made in this day and age as well. Today you have, for example, the creationist movement who come up with all kinds of proofs that evolution is a myth and that God created the earth. They can show you scientifically that the earth has existed thousands of years rather than millions upon millions of years. They have all kinds of prepositions, propositions of the evolutionists who are seriously flawed and based on all kinds of wrong assumptions. And they're right. There is no explanation other than God created the earth and the whole universe. And the whole universe. For a believer, for you and me. That's simple and clear enough. Yet, evolutionists don't buy it, do they? Why do you think that is? Well, they can come up with all kinds of counter-arguments. They're not so easily convinced. Why is that? Well, because it is not a matter of the mind in the first place, but it is a matter of the heart. Before they will embrace the truth, hearts need to be changed. You see, when people believe something, they believe it not so much because it makes sense, but because it fits in what what they want out of life. It fits their agenda. They have spent a lifetime living out of their convictions. You do not easily shake people out of their erroneous belief systems. They have invested too much of themselves in maintaining their flawed position. And if you do not want to accept something, then you will not accept it either, no matter how much proof you have. Intellectual arguments on their own do not touch you personally. They don't touch your heart. It's an intellectual exercise only. But the message of the Bible is personal. It deals with your heart. It especially concerns itself with your relationship with God. In the past, there have been some very able theologians who thought that the existence of God as such can conclusively be proved. They argued, for example, that all things must have their faith in, must have their origin in something. A human being, for example, could not have come about without parents. He finds his origin in his parents. If it were not for the parents, he or she would not have seen the light of day. And you can see that in nature around you as well, when you see a tree in a park, Then you know that this tree came from another tree and also that most likely at one time this tree was planted in that park. Someone dug a hole and planted it there. Same thing is true of a house. A house doesn't get there by itself. No, somebody had to build it. And so it is with everything around you, they said. Everything has its origin in something. And now when you reason back like that, so they say, then you have to come to the conclusion that there's also someone who was the first cause of all things. The first cause is the one who brought everything into motion. And that's God. All things, therefore, have their origin in God. And there you have the proof of God's existence. Other ways of reasoning were also used in order to prove the existence of God. They said, for example, that everything has a certain purpose or goal. And the final goal is God. All things must ultimately have their purpose in him. Now, do you think that anyone was ever convinced to believe in God with such argumentation? No. No. If you think the facts, the truth, is not going to serve your cause, then you won't accept it. An abortionist, for example, will not accept the truth that a child in the womb is a living human being, even though all the facts point to the contrary. A child in the womb has its own bloodstream and blood type and has a beating heart, why in the world would they deny those facts? Well, because the truth is inconvenient. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, they refuse to love the truth. And therefore, God sends them the power of delusion. They are deluded because they don't have God in the picture. And so, our faith does not depend on a certain way of reasoning without God in the picture. And that is why the 12 articles of our undoubted Catholic Christian faith also begin with the words, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We do not say, I believe, that God as such exists, no, I believe in him, period. And now you start from a completely different basis. Although you may not be able to prove God's existence to an unbeliever, you and I know for certain that he exists. Just look around you. Just look at the beauty of this creation. How in the world could that have come about by evolution? And even though we do not know everything about God and understand everything about him, his existence is nevertheless obvious to you. There is no doubt in your mind, in my mind. You see, evolutionists are dishonest. For in their hearts they know very well that they cannot prove their own position. For in order to believe in evolution, you have to assume all kinds of things. And that is why science has to change its theories about the origin of the world all the time. For time and again, their assumptions are proved to be wrong. And then they have to come up with a new theory again. Some of the most brilliant minds among scientists will be honest enough to say that the doctrine of evolution can't be right, it's wrong. They have observed that science really is not able to prove all that much. So some of them have become agnostics or they believe that there is a God somewhere, but that's about as far as they will go because they don't want to be held accountable. Ultimately, they don't know what the truth is anymore. They wallow in the miry world of doubt. A Christian is honest enough to state that he believes even though there are certain things that he is not able to fully understand. As it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We believe what God tells us in his word. And that's also to what the Heidelberg Catechism directs us to God's word. The catechism says that we speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because God has so revealed himself in his word. The catechism is daring for us to open up God's word and to go through it from beginning to end, for then you cannot come to any other conclusion than that is how God has revealed himself. Catechism wants to take all doubt away. Catechism makes a direct appeal to the Word of God. And rightly so. A few moments ago, the introductory song, Psalm 68, we sang Psalm 68, stanza 3, or at least we sang it in our hearts. And there we see what the Old Testament believer confessed concerning God. We sang, He, Father, To the fatherless, defense of widows in distress is in his habitation. God, in the goodness of his grace, gives lonely ones a dwelling place. Father, God. God is the same as Father. And that's in accordance with the unrhymed version. They knew God as their father then already. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come with something new when he referred to his Father in heaven. No, that is how God's people have always known their God. We also sang from Psalm 2. This is known as a psalm about the coming Messiah. It speaks about the Son of God. And that's especially clear from the way this psalm is quoted in Hebrews 1 verse 5. The text leaves no doubt that these words are a direct Reference to Jesus Christ. The Son of God is God himself. We sang from Psalm 39, stanza 4, concerning the Spirit of God. Where can I from your spirit flee? No one can. That is because the Spirit is God himself. No one can escape God. You can escape all kinds of creatures and calamities and circumstances, but God you cannot escape, for he is everywhere. His spirit is everywhere for the spirit of God. The spirit was also there when God the Father created. You can read that on the first page of your Bible. It says there in Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. DSV, rightly so, capitalizes these words. And the Son was also there when God the Father created. For in the beginning of the of the Gospel of John, we read about the word. In John 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in verse 14, It is made absolutely clear that the Word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For it says there that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us all three persons of all three persons were there at the time of creation that is how you confess him for that is how god reveals himself in his word we do not go to science to find out about who god is he shows us from his word who he is and we experience his presence in our lives he dwells in our hearts through his word and spirit but does that then mean that all reasoning about God as he exists in three persons is to be rejected? Has God not given us the ability to reason certain things out? Certainly we may do that, and we must also do that, but as long as we stay within the parameters of God's word, our faith is a reasonable faith. On its own, it makes much more sense than scientific theories. And that is why also the early church came to some very good reasoning concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. For the early church had to deal with some horrible attacks on the doctrine of God. They had to deal with those who twisted the scriptures because they appealed to their own reasoning, to their own fertile sinful minds divorced from God. And when your thinking is not spirit-driven, then your mind is prone to the promptings of the devil. And so during the latter part of the 3rd century, and the beginning of the 4th, the divinity of Christ became a serious issue. Because of the devil's prompting, the church was confronted with a serious question as to whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ is also God. Is Jesus Christ someone else than the Father, and yet essentially the same than he? How do we understand that? How are we to see the relationship between the Father and the Son? Such questions came from those who appealed first to their reason, to their imagination. Such questions did not come from a living faith. A man such as Arius declared that the Lord Jesus Christ could not be God. For, so he said, there is only one God According to him, Christ was the most important human being on earth, created by God, but he was not God himself. And then the church fought back with the scriptures. Athanasius pointed out that if the Lord Jesus Christ is not God, then we as yet would be lost and still in our sin. For then a created being would have delivered us from sin. And that's impossible. No creature is capable of doing that. No, the Lord Jesus Christ had to be God himself for him to have the power to conquer Satan and death and to raise himself, as the scriptures say, from the dead. Those are important issues to deal with. For here you are speaking about the basis of your faith. Only God can create. Only God can save you from your sins. Only God can sanctify you. Only God can recreate you and make you a new creature. Arius' teachings were condemned by the Synod of Nicaea in 325 AD. And then later there was a discussion about God in three persons. It was noted that the Bible speaks about the Father as the Creator, the Son as the Savior, and the Holy Spirit as the Sanctifier. What does that mean? Again, they ask, is God not one? Can there be divisions in God? Does it not say in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. What then does it mean that God also reveals himself One time as father, another time as son, and yet another time as Holy Spirit. Some people came with the explanation that God reveals himself in three modes. You would compare him to a man who, within his own home, would exhibit himself and act as the father in his family. At work, he would be the tailor or the potter, and at church he would be the janitor. He is one and the same man, but depending on the circumstance and location, he would manifest himself in a different role. Well, they said, so it is with God. Once again, the church had to go back to the way God has revealed himself in his word. For if you were to go along with those people who appeal to their own reasoning, then that would mean that when Christ died, it was not really Christ hanging on the cross, but the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Father did not hang on the cross and die for our sins, but the Son did. And so the early church fathers had to carefully distinguish between the work of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They said therefore, in accordance with the scriptures, that God is indeed one. He cannot be divided. But he does exist in three persons. And these three persons must be carefully distinguished from each other. And so you can see that it is out of that discussion that we began to use the terminology, as we also do today and as we find it in the Athanasian Creed, which we just read. Now we use such terminology as God existing in three persons, and such a word as Trinity. And now we also speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being of the same substance. Sure, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that words such as Trinity And substance and person in reference to God. Are not even mentioned in the Bible. And they're right. But the triune God certainly is. And the three persons of the Trinity. Are all and the same God. And that is also very clear from the scriptures. Can we prove it? Yes of course we can. From the Bible. But. Once again, is that how we convince others? Through human reasoning in the first place. No, you must first confess your faith about the Almighty God. And therefore, you should speak in the same way as the Heidelberg Catechism does, which so beautifully summarizes the Word of God. And so you must also depend on that as the only truth. For in what names were you baptized? In what names did you receive the wonderful promises of God? You and I, in accordance with the Bible, were baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And why were you baptized in those three names? Because that's what God demanded. Lord Jesus Christ gave the missionary command to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Every time we leave this church building, as we will in a moment, we will have the Trinitarian blessing as given to us from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is the blessing of the triune God for us for the rest of the week as we go about our daily business. That is not some dry piece of doctrine that we receive. No, we receive the blessing of the eternal God who exists in three persons. Can we fully understand God? No. And we won't. Not fully. At least not until we meet Him face to face in the life hereafter. There are many things we won't understand that God will make clear to us then. But in the meantime, we must confess Him and believe in Him in the way that He has revealed Himself to us. Our confession about the triune God is short and simple. But it is immensely powerful. It is about our Lord God, who is great and wonderful. He is our God and Father. He is our God and Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our God and Holy Spirit. He is one God, Almighty. Amen.